Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode of the podcast, I'll be getting my look at Lovecraft's poetry written before 1920 or 1921 or so. I originally intended to do two episodes on poetry and then one to kind of sum up this series of his non-short story writings. Um, but I think it's going to take three. So we'll do three and then I'll decide if I have enough more to say about race um you know actually that third part yeah i, may, I might just do this because the third part of this poetry series will be focusing on world war one theme poetry and that has a lot of racial issues in it and i'll just kind of sum up a, a few assorted writings that that maybe i didn't get to in that third episode so um yeah so i'm going to look at a series i don't know the particular order here I, i'm getting these mostly from uh the Complete Poetry of H.P. Lovecraft, which is a public domain kind of publication. You can just print it out. Um, I know there's a book that has this complete poetry called, um, I forget the name of it. It's called The Ancient Track. I just looked it up. The Complete Poetical Works of H.P. Lovecraft. This is edited by S.T. Joshi, of course. It's about, um, let's see how long it is. 600 pages. That's a lot longer than what I have here. So I guess there's a lot of poems I'm, I'm missing here um, that maybe we'll get to. But this will serve as a kind of a thematic connection to the things we've been talking about as we've been looking at this first period of H.P. Lovecraft's career as a writer. So I, I've picked out how many here? Um, 19 mature poems. There's a few I skipped that I do have here just because they weren't particularly interesting for me. Um, and then there's three juvenile poems, which I'll, I'll mention quickly first, and then I'll look at six more in this episode, and then the next two episodes we'll have another 13 or so. So that is the plan here. Um, so I'm going to focus on themes that are relevant to what I'm talking about. Race, the sea, hereditary, heredity, um, World War I, especially for this series. Uh, knowledge and that so um, let's let's just jump into it so these aren't going to be like line by line analyses they're going to I'm going to introduce these poems urge you to maybe check them out yourself and show you why I think they're kind of interesting for understanding fully Lovecraft's philosophy and worldview um, on the issues that, that I'm most interested in exploring all right so we start out with uh with uh, his juven some juvenilia, um, stuff written before 1905. Um, and there's three here, there's a couple others, but there's three here that I think are really kind of crucial. Um, one is called To the Old Pagan Religion. And this is uh, an, a, a theme we've talked about before, which is kind of traditional religions, networks of knowledge, and, and how they're related, how somehow vernacular networks of, of lower class people, working class people, peasants, maintain old traditions. Now, in a lot of these poems, you get a lot of these Hellenic influences, of course. It's um, obviously um, part of the, the poetic tradition in the West, right? So that might be what's going on here. But uh, this particular poem to the old pagan religions is uh, kind of a perspective on the old religions in the face of a new rising religion, specifically Christianity. And this, this tension between kind of a new tradition and an old. And I think that's going on in a lot of Lovecraft's writings, 
where it might be like the scientific worldview coming to terms with a more magical worldview that's that's um, kind of more vernacular. Um, so he writes here, Olympian gods, how can I let ye go and pin my faith to this new Christian creed? Can I resign the deities I know for him who on a cross the man did bleed? Um, how in my weakness can my hopes depend on one lone God, though mighty in his power? Why can Jill's host no more assistance led to soothe my pain and cheer my troubled heart? So we have um, someone going through a transition from um, belief in these pagan gods to uh, kind of almost a necessary acceptance of this new tradition, but he's having these doubts about the utility of it, of, of transitioning to it. But there's an inevitability of this transition, it seems. So it's kind of an interesting little poem. I'm not sure when he wrote it. Um, the next is On the Ruins of Rome. Um, and this is just a two-stanza poem that deals with decadence and the fall of, of, of a civilization, obviously. Um, so we have a civilization that creates law, that, that, that essentially creates the world of Europe, being forced into slavery by, quote, neath the foot of the Teuton. So we got a little bit of racial language there. Obviously, um, Lovecraft's, of course, in this time when the world's being divided up into these different races and sub-races. Um, but yeah, it kind of might remind us of the doom that came to Sarnath or other stories like that, dealing with the, the defense of civilization against some kind of um, barbarous other. Um, but another big theme here is on, it's, it's kind of a praising of the gifts of Rome to the, to the world. So next uh, is a poem that, that speaks to cosmic horror. It's called On the Vanity of Human Ambition. And obviously, just from the title, you, you know he's talking about this theme of, of the indifference of the universe to, to, man, to mankind. And that is really key, to, of course, to his whole cosmic horror writing. Now, he starts with that by, claim, by restating basically what the title says, the vanity of, of human ambition. Men aren't worthy of, of, of the gods. Essentially, here we've got the Greek gods being contrasted to the lowliness of man. But then the solution he gives, this is just a one stanza poem, but the solution he gives to it is uh, a virtuous life and a cultivated mind. So these are three little poems that kind of do, that were written when he was a child that do seem to suggest some of his later um, philosophy as we've already talked about. So next up is Psychopompus, A Tale in Rhyme. Um, it's, a, it's more of a short story that's written in verse. Um, it's not in the Klinger Anthology. It's not in this little book I printed out of his collected poetical works. It's, it actually got it in the, in the Lovecraft uh, compendium, or the Lovecraft Complete Fiction Omnibus, which is in three volumes, I think. You can find that online, print it out if you want. Um, so that, that's where I found it. I don't know why it's not in this collected poetical um, work printout I have, but it's uh, a relatively, it's, it's essentially a short story, and it's quite interesting, actually. It's a, it's a werewolf story, um, and the setting is something that's kind of more like a vampire story or, or a werewolf story where you have a, a noble who's kind of standoffish and aloof. You got peasants with all their rumors and suspicions, and you got people dying in strange circumstances, and then it's revealed at some point that, ah, the, the, the 
monster was that noble, right? That that it's it's. Ins- I read a whole anthology of vampire stories, and that comes up a lot in vampire stories, right? It's kind of almost a a reflection of the reality of of the class system in which you have uh, uh, nobility preying on the on the work on the on the poor on the peasant class. Um, obviously, that's um, easy to see. Um, but what go, happens a lot in this story, this poem, is a discussion of, of knowledge. So since it is narrative, I think it's worthy to just kind of go through very quickly what happens in this story. So we're in France, and we're immediately told that we have this ignorant peasantry. Schools are poor and few. And the peasants fancied what they scarcely knew. Um, and then you have this contrast with the Lord. Um, in a solitary castle, the lords and gentry and kings in their in their castles. So this uh, this class contrast. And I think what Lovecraft always does with this is have different ways of knowledge or different accesses to truth, right? So we're introduced to the the noble here, Sir Dubrois, um, and he's very standoffish. He's isolated in his his castle. Um, he has some contact with the poor, like the castle servants, but they're of the peasant class, and they have that same kind of gossipy um, sharing of traditions. Quote, the castle servants, few, discreet, and old, full many a tale of strangers might have told, but bowed with years they rarely left the door, wherein their sires, grandsires served before. Thus gossip rose as gossip rises best, when mystery imparts a keener zest. Seclusion off the poison tongue attracts, and scandal prospers on the death dearth of facts so obviously you know point being you know the peasants fill in what they don't know with with gossip and 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 little vernacular traditions as i've been calling them uh we're also introduced to the mistress of of this household and she's also fairly standoffish this whole family is is living in essentially isolation and then we move uh away from this castle and we get the story of the bailiff's son, uh, Jean, who dies. Um, and then much of the poem deals with the grief and the aftermath of Jean's mysterious death. Now, to make this more uh, mysterious, we, we were told that uh, Dame Dublois visited this bailiff's household sometime not long before the, the young, young man fell ill and, and soon after died. Then we're given the story of the grief of, of Jean's mother, a lot of details about it, um, her, her salty eyes, too tired now to weep, too pain to see, too sad to close and sleep. Um, but uh, so there's this, they still have the dead child in the house while she's grieving. Um, and then a snake arrives. A snake arrives and she, the mother, Attack, you know, kill, you know, hits the serpent with, uh, with an axe, and the injured reptile, not dead, um, hides away. The next little scene we get is the is Sir Dubois, the the noble, now an altered man. So goes to visit the bailiff and his wife to get their story and to hear their grief, uh, and then we're told in the next stanza that that Dame Dubois died. Right, so the mistress had died. Um, there's some relationship, obviously, here with the snake that was severely injured and this mistress's death, um, as well as the boy's death and the mistress's earlier visit to the, to the home. 
Um, but this death is kind of kept secret and it's learned about via these, these vernacular networks of knowledge. Um, quote, the village wondered why Dubois had kept his spouse's loss unmentioned and unwept, nor were there lacking slanderous tongues to claim that the dark master was himself to blame. But village talk could scarcely hope to solve a crime so deep and thus the months resolve. The rule train repeats the gruesome tale and gape and marvel more than they bewail. So Christmas comes, uh, we have a lot more here, a whole new stanza dealing again with gossips and mourning and, and the way the peasants uh, deal with tragedy. I think it's a very interesting part of the story, given the importance of, of various traditions in understanding the randomness of the world. I mentioned a book several times on this podcast called Cultures of Darkness by Brian Palmer. I love that book very much. And that book talks a lot about these um, kind of working class cultures and how they are constructed in part to mitigate the, the randomness of the, of the world, whether it's capitalism or feudalism or whatever. And it, it fills in and gives life some meaning and some regularity outside of that. And I'm sure that's true of much of the magic that certainly dwelled in the Middle Ages. It was just a way, witchcraft too, it was just a way for people to put some normalcy to a life that's otherwise quite quite random, um, actually. Since Lovecraft seems to agree that the world is kind of random and brutal and indifferent to humanity, I don't know why he's not a little bit more sympathetic with uh, these, with magic, because it is a way of, I guess he would say it's just an unscientific, you know, uneducated um, response. Instead, he should be brutal like him, right? And just face the indifference of the cosmos. But I'm more sympathetic to these traditions. Um, then we get the climax, which is an attack on the peasant village by, by wolves, focusing on the bailiff's house. And so much so that the, the bailiff's wife seems to be the target of this wolf's anger and, and so it's like a personal attack on the bailiff and his wife um the valiant ba bailiff quote-unquote valiant bailiff fights off the wolf with his with his axe uh saving the the wife um and then there's there's a long description here of the aftermath of this attack and this this battle with the wolves and then we're we're kind of returned to the overall narrate narrator which is a grandma who's telling the story and we're told that Sir Dubois is nowhere to be seen. So the the story seems to be saying that this man was a werewolf and was married to like a snake woman who were preying on the local population when this bailiff's wife killed the snake. This werewolf then wants to get revenge. Uh, I've never seen a, a snake and a werewolf kind of paired together this way before. I don't know if it's there in the mythology of werewolves at all, any association between the two, but it's here in this story. For better or for worse. So I like this story, this poem, a lot simply because it it really does get into it's actually one of his most detailed descriptions of peasant traditions um, being a source of knowledge and understanding for peasants. Uh, we've seen it a little bit in other stories. I, I talked about it in quite a few times in in his, in his early tales, but never in this much detail do you get that that really in depth discussion of, of peasant traditions and vernacular knowledge versus the more aristocratic elite knowledge. So yeah, if you're a Lovecraft fan and you haven't read Psychopompus, I, um, I urge you to do it. Now, I don't quite know where the title comes 
from? A psychopomp, of course, is a is a supernatural being that delivers people to the afterlife, right? So, of course, in the Dunwich Horror, Willow, Will of the Wisps, or Whippoorwill, sorry, Whippoorwills become our psychopomps, right? And some tradition, I think in, in England, um, Whippoorwills are, are, are seen as psychopomps. And other traditions have different traditions of them. I don't see a psychopomp here, so I don't know. Maybe it's a different origin. If anyone knows where the title of this comes from, let me know. Um, of course, people do die, so maybe it was the serpent or something that's the psychopompus. All right. Uh, so, by the way, I think that was published in 1918. Um, let me look. Yes, 1918 was written. It was written. It was published in October 1919 in The Vagrant, which was one of those amateur journals that Lovecraft wrote for. All right. So next, uh, kind of going out of order here, but that's okay. Um, Nemesis. This was written in November 1917 and it was published in June of 1918 in the same journal, The Vagrant. Um, this is a fun little story. We have kind of an allegorical um, figure as the narrator. Um, someone who's lived a long time and seen and experienced cosmic horror in all its different manifestations. So this poem, Stanza by Stanza, almost gives you, in a nutshell, each stanza sort of gives you a nutshell of one source of, of horror, horrific understanding that we see again and again in Lovecraft's writings, right? So in the first stanza, we get astronomy, you know, quote, quote past the wan-mooned abyss of night, I, I have lived over my lives without number, right? And it kind of ties to the next stanza, which also really sums up the cosmic horror. Uh, I have seen the dark universe yawning where the black planets roll without aim, where they roll in their horror unheeded without knowledge or luster or name. And the next stands that we get seas and travel and voyaging as being a source of a horrific understanding. Um, after that, we get to the, the vision of the primordial nature, the, the forests, uh, the, the, the groves, the, the, march, the marches, all the kind of the, the primordial nature that's a source of horror. Uh, then we get unknown geography, uh, cave-riddled mountains, fog-foited fountains, and uh, marshes with ooze and, and you know oozing marshes and things. Um, then we get to the human-made relics, and of course, if you read Lovecraft stories, you're well aware that that's a common trope of people finding some ancient architecture, an ancient temple, an ancient tomb, an ancient uh, you know, the writing on the walls in Antarctica and the, at the Mountains of Madness. Ancient architecture, a big theme for, for Lovecraft, usually predating humanity. And we have that here in a couple stanzas. One talking about palaces and tapestries and other... Um, uh, I'll just read it. I have peered from the casement and wonder at the moldering meadows around, at the many roofed villages laid under the curse of the grave-girded ground, and from the rows of white urn-carved marble I listen intently for sound. That's followed by tombs. And then in the final two, three stanzas, we get ancient civilizations, um, the pharaohs, and we actually get ancient civilizations in the Arctic referred to in the poem. Um, and then we get the summary, which is fear. So I'll just read the last stanza, and it kind of groups all this together. Uh, through the ghoul-guarded gateways of slumber, past the wan moon abyss of night, I have lived 
or many lies without number. I have sounded all things at my sight, and I struggle and shriek ere the daybreak, being driven to madness with fright. The theme seems to be that if you were to have a lifetime long enough to accumulate all this knowledge of of the the nature of of the world and all its different facets, astronomical, geological, historical, uh, whatever, you you have no choice but to go mad with with fright. But fortunately, most of us don't have a lifetime of and don't have all those experiences. We just see the glimpses, right? Like Lovecraft's heroes, they'll just see a glimpse of something. That's enough to drive them mad. This is someone who sees the totality of it. So uh, the next poem we can look at is Astrophobus. So uh, that was written in November 1917 and it was published in the United Amateur. So the Astrophobus just is fear of, of astronomy. And this is a nice little poem, just a handful of stanzas. It's a quick read. And it's, it shows someone who goes from being fascinated with the, the joy, the beauty of astronomy uh, it's it's fantasy. We have someone dreaming, looking at the stars, dreaming of them in terms of Elysia, the harmonies of Lydian lays. You get some kind of Greek imagery, of course, here. Um, but just this fantasy of the stars. Uh, uh, imagine it as a scene of pleasures. Quote, there, thought I, lie scenes of pleasure where the free and blessed dwell. And each moment bears a treasure frightened with the... or frightened with the lotus spell. And there floats a liquid measure from the lute of Isfar... Israfel. Worlds of happiness unknown is talked about in the next stanza. But then there's a change. It's kind of not clear what that change is. We're not told what it is. But um, the narrator here, the poet, uh, muses when the vision changes. Quote, corrupt a red delirious change, hope dissolving to derision, beauty to distortion, strange, hymnic chords and weird collusions, spectral sights and endless range. And then you go to this terror uh, and fear. And I, I think that's a very, it's, again, it's something we see a lot in Lovecraft's um, fiction of, of just one little change, one different perspective on something can take something from being beautiful and interesting and creative to something um, that, that causes great fear and terror. Um, the next one, uh, The Poet's Nightmare, was written in 1916. This, this one didn't do much for me. Be honest it's it's a it's quite long it's almost as long as is psychopompous in terms of like word count um and it's it's kind of got a degree of self-ridicule in it because it's obviously lovecraft in this time was very much enamored by poe and he was like a, you know into that effort to try to emulate poe and many of his stories he does that in fact in many of these poems he's trying to emulate uh, poe in the terms of set mood creating the effect like those single effect stories that we've all um, read about when we studied Poe in high school. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't find too much of interest in here. If you're interested in this aspect of, of Lovecraft, his Poe, Poet, that's the, it's actually spelled P-O-E-E-T, so it's Poet. Um, if you're interested in that aspect of Lovecraft, if you're interested in Poe, you might like this poem more. Um, now, as I said, it's, it's quite long. It's, it's bracketed. So you've got a story of a guy named Lucilius Languish, who is like an amateur astronomer. So he's kind of like Lovecraft. He wants to be a poet. So he's like Lovecraft too in this stage. You know, Lovecraft still had dreams of being a poet. He didn't fully commit to, non, to, to fiction writing until later. Um, now this guy, unlike Lovecraft, you know, has a job. He's a grocer's clerk. He eats too much. 
and he has a lot of dreams and he reads too much Poe. So indigestion, eating too much along with reading too much Poe gives him these dreams. Uh, and the center part, that's the story that kind of brackets it. And this, the middle part is his, is the poem that's constructed apparently from his, his dream. Uh, the way it's written here is, Uneasy sounds in slumbering fashion make at length their owner fancies they rehearse and lips this awesome poem in blank verse. And mostly this poem is just about mood, I think. I mean, it's not horrible. It's just kind of boring. So anyways, if, if you like that kind of stuff, you can read uh, A Poet's Nightmare. But I, I think it is kind of interesting as a, a bit of a self-referential a little bit self-mocking, this kind of adoration of, of Poe. And I think the, the, the narrator maybe shares some characteristics with Lovecraft in, in you know, like the amateur astronomy and this desire to be a poet and maybe just consuming a little bit too much of Edgar Allan Poe. All right, um, next, uh, Despair. Despair was written in February 1919, published in Pinecones in June of 1919. This poem uh, sort of reminds me of, of Astrophobus because it, it deals with someone whose, whose perspective on things changes very suddenly, um, do, you know, in, a, in a not entirely clear way, but um, you know, something goes from being beautiful and mesmerizing to something kind of terrifying and, and horrific. Hope to despair is, is the theme we get here in this particular poem. He writes, once I think half remembered ere the gray skies of November quenched my youth's despairing ember, lived there such a thing as bliss. Skies that now are dark were beaming, golden azure, splendid seeming, till I learned that all was dreaming, deadly drowsiness of dis. Now the, the enemy here, the villain here is time. And so it's, it's as you age, you start to realize more about the universe, I guess, and that leads the shift to despair. So despair is time very closely here with time and with voyages and, and voyages being, I guess, partially a metaphor for just knowledge and knowledge uh, acquisition. And as the poem ends, we're, we're told straight up that basically existence is, is useless. And that is the, the dilemma of our, of our poet here. Um, quote, thus the living lone and sobbing in the throes of anguish throbbing with the loathsome furies robbing night and noon of peace and rest. But beyond the groans and grating of abhorrent life is waiting, sweet oblivion culminating all the years of fruitless quest. So uh, um, a pretty bleak poem here just about this insignificance of existence, given kind of the reality of being towards towards death. So. Um, that's some of Lovecraft's poems. Uh, I liked all of these except Poet's Nightmare, which just bored me. All the others I, I, I found interesting. And in the next episode, I'll look at seven poems, um, all written in the same period of time, 1917 to 1919, dealing with various themes. They're all fairly short. I mean, this one, there's a couple long ones, like Poet's Nightmare and, and, and Psychopompus both quite long. These are all shorter. Um, and I'll look at those. And then in a follow-up episode, a third episode on poetry, I'll look at a variety of, of poems dealing with, with pacifism, World War I, England, 
and that's going to be rehashing things we already know if you've been listening along with this podcast but um it's important to look at the totality of his expression of anglophilia and we'll we'll do it there then i think there's also a, a robert e lee poem that he wrote at this time which maybe maybe we'll look at that one too i don't know I'll go back through. I might add to that. But in any case, uh, we're done with uh, a handful of his poems from this period, but we'll pick up next time with a few more. So I'm not a real specialist in poetry. I don't spend much time reading it. I'm not that good at poetry. I'm just kind of mining these for the themes that I'm most interested in. I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said about all these. So pop me out. Let me know what you think. Send me your comments uh, to 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but uh, in any case, I'll be back shortly with uh, some, my thoughts on some more of Lovecraft's poems.